0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jonathan Cortés, the producer and host of today's episode. And today we'll be talking with Dr. Jennifer Kashaka Seaman about her recently released book, Borderlands Curanderos, The Worlds of Santa Te- Teresa Urrea and Don Pedrito Jaramillo, published by the University of Texas Press in 2021. Dr. Seaman is currently a lecturer in history at the Metropolitan State University of Denver where she teaches classes in US and Latin American history with an emphasis on race and gender. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on air with us today and welcome to the show.
1: Hi Jonathan, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited.
0: We are also very excited, and I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, right? Perhaps tell us a bit about where you grew up, where you went to school, grad school, who you worked with, and what were your uh, what were you inspired by when you came to write uh, on the topic of, of Mexican folk healing along the U.S.-Mexico border, public health, and the intersections of race and gender.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um. So uh, yes, I was actually born. Um, in the Midwest, I was born in Iowa, um, in Des Moines, Iowa, but my family moved around quite a bit when I was young. Um, but mostly I grew up in my high school years and, and grade school years in Rochester, Minnesota. Um, so very far from the border. Um, and um, and I, um, when I first went to college, I was an acting major. So I, uh, I switched, um, I had did a lot of things. And then when I kind of eventually came back to undergraduate, to finish my undergraduate, I um, was a literature major. And then I took a history class that I loved and switched majors. And that kind of put me on the trajectory um, to become the histo- historian. Um, so I did uh, my undergraduate in history at the University of Texas um, in Denton, Texas. Um, so kind of traveled around from my early years in Minnesota, lived a bunch of different places and eventually settled in Texas um, and did my undergraduate at UNT um, with a major in history and then a minor in Spanish. Um, and then I went to Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, um, to do my PhD work. Um, and I, I went to SMU, um, really because for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons was their, their borderlands, um, Southwestern history kind of focus, focus program that they had there. And, um, when I first started, David Weber, um, was the head of the department. Um, and, um, yes, I'm sure that, you know, he passed away, um, you know, several years ago. And that was the second year that I was in grad school, but he really was the person that um, at first kind of helped me with find this topic when I started graduate school, I was interested in sort of everything. I was uh, uh, very envious of my cohort where, you know, some people had really specific ideas and um, they already had done master's theses. but I was like, I- I'm interested in everything. And of course, I've always been really interested in um, in, in women and gender and race and also religion um, and just also religious experience. So um, that kind of led me to read a book about Teresa Urea called Teresita um, by William Curry Holden, um, which is, you know, what historians, what we call a hagiography, um, uh, kind of he writes the story of her life, um, sort of as a a novel. So it's a little bit, you know, definitely how we don't write history, but um, it, it just opened up for me, not only this person, Teresa Urea, but Cuanderismo, um, I didn't know anything about um, this healing practice at, at all. Um, and I um, I, mean, I grew up a Catholic um, in the Catholic Church, so... Um, you know, I there's things about cuanderismo that I certainly like could understand in terms of the that mix of sort of Catholicism and folk Catholicism, but this was totally new to me, and so I was intrigued by it. And so David Weber basically said, well, why don't you just do a kind of a seminar paper on just a literature review, you know, a histori- historiography on cuanderismo broadly, and just get to reading all that you can read on it. And that um, Jonathan is kind of what eventually led me to. The topic, my dissertation topic, which was pulling together, you know, the story of stories of Don Pedrito Jaramillo and Teresa Urea. Um, and so, yeah, so that is, um, that's how I came to to the topic, to grad school. And then, of course, I, um, you know, developed it into the monograph um, that it is now. But it, it all started with this one conversation with David Weber and a seminar paper. And then it just kind of grew from there. So I,
0: I love that. I mean, I, I think it's so fascinating. Now, I'm curious to hear, right, I think every sort of grad student, uh, junior faculty, junior junior academic, right, loves <laughs> to hear other academics, especially those who have published their first book. See the development of our thoughts through graduate school and into the book manuscript, and so I think that's fantastic that you also have a similar story in terms of the, the lit review, and so so maybe getting into the book now, getting into Borderlands: Good Can you talk us yeah. Can you talk us through uh, the introduction, right? What is important to know? Uh, maybe uh, uh, you know on page one, you 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 right out the gate, you define curanderismo, right? On page one, you say. Curanderismo is an earth-based healing practice that blends elements of indigenismo medicine with folk Catholicism, right? Why was that so important to get out at the beginning? And then how does the introduction unravel from your perspective?
1: Yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, So I thought it was important um, to to define curanderismo um, for the reader. And I think, um, you know, after living with a topic for so many years in grad school, i I obviously was, I understood, or, you know, had been reading about Quinterismo and Quinteros for a while and, and speaking with some. Um, So I, but I'm thinking about the reader that, that what would be me you know when i started this journey what is this healing practice and um as i'm sure you know it's it's a very um rich and in many ways complex healing practice but i feel felt like it was and so there's so many great um definitions out there so you know i kind of look look through all my literature like who's all the different ways that had had been defined by other scholars and practitioners and that definition i know partly the earth-based practice came from um Dr. Natalie Avalos, who um, does is in the Ethnic Studies Department at the University of Colorado Boulder, and she's an amazing scholar um, that works on you know uh, um, a, partly Quindianismo, but also Buddhism and other religious practices. Um, and I had had. Done research and met her in University of New Mexico, um, at Albuquerque's Traditional Healing Without Borders seminar. And anyway, so I were sort of we were friends, and 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 I she part of her definition was that earth based practice, and I really liked that. Um, um, and and also the indigenous part I think is important, and so um, so though I wanted to make sure that that those both those things got in the definition, but. The, the definition could be really, really long. And so I kind of chose those things to say. So, yeah, so getting that definition, um, Jonathan, out there, I thought was important. And I try to kind of pull back the layers of that throughout the book because, you know, coranderos practice differently, even though there's some commonalities and common threads. So um, so getting that definition out there, I thought was important. And then really kind of setting the stage in the introduction. I just want to set the stage for the particular coranderos that this book looks at. And um, uh, so, so starting in the present, um, I decided to start with um, the uh, being at the shrine. So, some of the research that I did for for the book was, and I know you're familiar um, with this region, um, with the Don Pedrito Jaramillo Shrine um, in in South Texas, outside of Falfurias. I visited the shrine several times, um, and then when I was talking to people in this community, and was always really moved by. Um, the wall of of notes um, that people write to Don Pedrito, and um, it um, so that's so that was kind of the inspiration. I wanted to kind of bring the reader into the the world of Don Pedrito and really the fact that these coranderos, um are s- still meaningful and still have a presence. Um, and and I think as historians, we want to always sort of try to say our work matters, and or even as history teachers, right, the past matters want to tell our students it's not just this dead thing of this list you know litany of facts that we want people to get but actually it's alive and, and living and breathing and so so taking readers to kind of the shrine and then you in, know, in, in, introduction opens with the shrine and then goes to um, another research trip I had was to El Paso. Um, there was this great museum that's no longer there that celebrated um, kind of the Mexican revolution and this, and Teresa Urea's presence in, in El Paso in 1896. And so that was also really influential for me because, you know, as an outsider um, to this culture, um, I was, um, I had a lot of people help me and welcome me um, and you know, and share with me their culture. And that was one of the places that that happened Um, there at the university of Texas, El Paso's um, Museo Urbano. Um, And so I wanted to bring those two kind of worlds together from the, my kind of research perspective um, before I kind of go back in the chapters and do, um, and then do, you know, then do the actual history 150 years ago. So kind of setting the stage, showing that these healers are still, um, a part of this world, of this border world, and this larger world um, of, of he- this healing practice, where, where it's known um, in, in, across, you know, the United States and the borderlands. Um, and then, just kind of laying out in the chapter as as we do sort of what the literature has been, what has been written about Don Pedrito and Teresa Urrea and Corerismo broadly, and kind of you know healing more broadly. Um, there's not a ton written about uh, Don Pedrito, especially or Teresa Teresa Urrea a bit more for sure because of her kind of presence in Mexico during um you know different events there. So, um, so, so I you know, really pull from different disciplines and wanted to kind of include that in the introduction as well. Um, and I, I'll tell you, Jonathan, I had originally written a whole other chapter that I foresaw coming before the kind of the, the, the chapters that look at Teresa Urrea and Don Petrito, the way the book is set up now. I wanted to do just a full chapter on the origins of Quirenderismo. And that turned out to be another book. <laughs> so my, my, and, and so I kind of incorporate that a little bit in the d- introduction as well. And I talk about um, uh, uh, Cabeza de Vaca. Uh, so Texans know. Many Texans know we know the story of Alvar Nunez Cameza de Vaca, who was sort of held prisoner by indigenous people, you know, very early on, 1530, 30s, 1535, um, and for six years, and sort of um, passed among different indigenous groups, some forcing him or encouraging him, or yeah, I would say it's better saying you heal, do these heal, you do, do these healings of people so that you'll be fed. Um, and so that kind of I thought that would be an interesting way to open up the origin of Cuendarismo as a Spanish and indigenous. And then also, of course, um, Esteban, Estebanico, who was one of these castaways with Cabeza de Vaca, um, uh, enslaved African, thought it would be a really good way to kind of open up a discussion of broadly all these, these different threads that contribute to what Cuendarismo is. So I touch on that in the introduction, but um, it was, I had started, I took like a whole summer and just did deep reading into Spanish medicine and all these different things and African healing traditions. And it just turned out to be really too much for this book. Um, And, and really it was, it it was great learning for me, but so outside of, you know, early colonial history um, as a. So, um, but I do, but I did a lot of research into that and I kind of incorporated some of that in the introduction as well to show that this healing practice has a history, um, just as these healers have a history that it is, um, born of colonialism and it's this, um, you know, and it's, uh, part, in part, we could say it's resistance to accommodation with colonialism and all these really interesting ways to think about Clendetismo. Um, but it does have this history and of course it's ongoing. So, um, So, yeah, so those are some of the things that I tried to do in the introduction and kind of, you know, laying out, um, you know, the background before getting to the stories of the two healers that I look at in the book.
0: Yeah. And I think I think now that I hear you talking about it. The, I mean, the introduction was fantastic, and I think it makes so much sense as to why you focused on, you know, you sort of, you, you sort of lay out these cross-cultural exchanges between European, Native, and African heritage um, cultures and practices, right? Um, and then you kind of bring it to like you said Cabeza de baja but de baja, uh, as 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 a sort of origin of curanderismo on the borderlands which then leads us into right a very very nicely into uh, santa teresa and don uh, don padrito especially because these two figures are 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 happening at the same time right there's a lot of overlap between santa teresa and don uh, don Pedrito in terms of the timeline right they 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 these two historical actors at the turn of the 20th century, are are not only happening uh, in the lineage of this longer history of curanderismo, but also happening during big transformations in in South Texas, in the borderlands. Right, the transformation of the rise of scientific, scientific professional medicine, spiritist movements, and nation building projects, which we'll get into later, because I think these are so these this context of of what's happening along the borderlands at the turn of the 20th century is critical to. The identity formation and 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 the cultural remembrance of both Santa Teresa and Don Pedrito, um, and it's interesting because on page twelve you write uh, about about these two about these two um, healers. You write it was their extraordinary responses to the failure of institutions that made Santa Teresa and Don Pedrito threats and in some cases assets to state and institutional authority. So I'm curious. Before, like, can you speak broadly about what you're th- Like, like how how were Santa Teresa and Don Pedro uh, threats to the state? And we'll get into this more deeply. But why is this important to say about both of them? Like, right, this I felt was uh, central to the the throughline of your book, uh, and I'm curious to hear you talk about it.
1: Yeah thank you jonathan yeah that's that's like very much um it's so important and really the argument um the of the book the broad argument and the kind of um you know one of the so yes yeah, so so they were um yes threats to um in the case of santa teresa and again we'll talk about that in the chapters i know but like threats to literally, uh, she was called dangerous, right? Because she spoke to indigenous people in Mexico, as she healed them. Um, and you know, said things that were very counter to what the the government of Mexico um, at that time was saying, right, in, in terms of, you know, give, you you can hold on to your land. The, you know, the government has no right to take your land, which was what was happening in the case of the context of Sonora and Sinaloa, where she was from. But yes, but again, I know we'll talk about that in the chapters, but I think that um, that argument um, came because one of the things that I, when I first started this project, I, I was really moved by and inspired by Um, this idea that the work of these healers was not simply fun and interesting history. And it it is interesting history, but often like these kinds of the the cuanderismo or cuanderos, the way that I had seen them written about, not by everyone. I don't want to, because a lot, there's been really great scholarship, but in general, especially as, you know, in Texas, and I was in Texas and I um, worked in a bookstore and, um, and this great bookstore in Denton, Texas. And in the basement, we had a Texana section, so all this like Texas history, but also, you know, Texas folklore and all this kind of cool stuff. But often like topics, especially Don Pedrito would be included in like folklore books and um, which was these were great primary sources. But it often felt like he and just and um, in, in particular were seen as sort of interesting side notes. To the major, right? The major moves of history, like the the major players, and often I feel like this is the way with silenced peoples and and silenced, you know, people that are marginalized and 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 you know, kind of um, not given. They're not given the center stage of history. You know, they're not uh, the the presidents and the the deal makers and all these things. That as historians, um, those people can be easier to study in a way. And I wanted to put these Coranderos front and center into what was these transformations, major transformations because they were there. And um, and so the fact that the failures of the state, both I'd say the failures of the state um, in terms of Mexico, in terms of the United States, in terms of Texas, you know, in the different actual states, but this idea of state power and also the violence often um, of, of state power, they worked in opposition to that rather than... Um, you know, acquiesce to that, but real that state power. Um, in the case of Teresa, she resists it um, at cost to herself, but also she heals communities that are on the receiving end of really violence um, and being marginalized. The same with Don Pedrito, even though he's not maybe outspoken politically in the case of just, you know, what sources we have on him. Um, He was there in South Texas during a time when we know um, there was great violence and racism against communities of color, ethnic Mexicans. And here he is healing people. And um, so I see them as these community building people that are there serving communities because communities that are sometimes, again, the target of state violence or just left out um, of of these projects of nation building. Um, and then, and then, also, of course, they're, um, you know, they are practicing a kind of healing, a kind of medicine, at a time when the whole concept of what is legitimate healing and what is legitimate medicine is being discussed. Um, and so, all of this, I wanted to really incorporate them into, um, into. Um, sorry about that ding that went off there. Um, so yeah, I wanted to make sure that that was these were the main. This was front and center in all the analysis. So thank you for that, bringing up that quote. Um, it is really important to to the whole theme of the book, the argument of the book, really.
0: Yeah, and, and one thing as you were as you were speaking right now, it made me think a lot about how you finding you know the Santa Teresa and Don Pedrito being relegated to the footnotes of of folklore rather than as as historical actors who who made impacts on the lives and and communities. Of, of 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 like lots of people um, goes to show like it, it sort of it sort of goes to show how an, another argument in your book was that like they weren't being taken seriously because of their uh, their curanderismo, especially in the face of what is um, what is progress what is development and so for you to put them you know front and center of a scholarly manuscript, um, I think really shifts our perception, our understanding of these two characters. So, so thank you so much for that. Um, so so the first two chapters, you're talking about uh, Santa Teresa Urea, who was born in 1873, uh, ends up passing in 1906. Uh, and chapter one, you title it The Mexican Joan of Arc, which is really fascinating to, to see that story develop. But you start the chapter um, with, uh, telling us about the Teresistas and and how made up of a, the you know group of Teresistas made up of Yaqui and Mexicans crossed the border from Nogales Arizona to Nogales Sonora and attack a custom house in an attempt to overthrow the Mexican government right and then so I'm curious right why was this why was this scene this moment so important to introduce us to Santa Teresa
1: Thank you for that question, Jonathan. Yeah, I um, I really deliberated over how to open that open the that chapter on Teresa Urrea. and so I chose this moment in her in her history where, um, as you as you mentioned, there's this 1896. Um, there are actually across the border in this period. There are several kind of like attempts to overthrow the government of of Porfirio Diaz um, and the Mexican president or dictator um, we might might say. But he um, so this is one of them and um, called the Terracista uprising because the the insurrectionists um, the. Believed in, they were found to have and an, an, um, uh, images of Tetasista on their bodies, and um, uh, that and the idea that she had blessed them, that she had blessed this uprising, this potential overthrow of the Mexican government that was staged on the U.S. side of the border, um, and um, you know Nogales, Arizona, and then Nogales, um, Sonora, as you said, is where that it took place. So in this chapter, I wanted to start with this this uprising because I wanted to frame. Uh, Teresa Urea, as a political actor. Um, And so, you know, part of the kind of marginalization that happens with women, um, with, you know, she's a woman of color, she's a Mexican woman, um, she's a healer, all of these kind of pieces of her identity tend, will to have anyone's identity will marginalize them. The political actors, right, are the men. First of all, they're, or I mean, certainly, so I wanted to frame her as this political actor. And even though Teresa Urea would say in interviews, I had nothing to do with these uprisings, and she's connected to other uprisings in Mexico as well, but this one took place on the border, so it's the one I wanted to focus with. Um, It's clear that, of course, she, as she was being kind of tracked by the Mexican government, to me, I would argue that, um, you know, she was probably saying that she had nothing to do with it to protect herself, but all the evidence shows that she was very involved in this political project, writing, helping to write this um, anti-Diaz newspaper called El Independiente, from the U.S. side of the border. Um, she was listed as an editor. That's where most of my, kind of my words that I get from her um, uh, are f- from this paper that she's very much a part of this group of people who have left Mexico, been exiled from Mexico, kicked out of Mexico because of their anti-government, um, anti-Diaz um, activity. So so, so showing again, so her as a po- very politically engaged woman, um, and was was one thing. And then also, I think uh, the way so um, in the, the indigenous piece of this as well is, I think, something I wanted to think about. It was something that I thought about a lot um, in my research that she would say so often, um, like the Mexican government and their in their like assessments of her, whether in newspapers or in the files they kept on her. They would often write things like the, the you know, fanatic, indios fanaticos, like the fanatic, quote unquote, Indians um, follow her because they just, right, um, they blindly follow her. Like, so giving them no credit at all for having, like making choices and having a reason to be upset with the government. Um, so these kinds of really derogatory and dismissive ways that, um, you know, the same on the US side of the border, officials would speak of indigenous peoples as sort of, you know, not having the same kind of, you know, we'd say the agency. Um, and Choy and Orea herself would say, I had nothing to do with these. One of her quotes is, I'm sort of paraphrasing it here. I had nothing to do with these uprisings. Then she would say, she says, and I do quote this somewhere in the book, these people have always been fighting for their land. So she very clearly says, I think so her, I'm not a part of this. It's so also the the, the, the story, this the book and the story of this Terracista uprising isn't just about Teresa Urea. It's about this larger context of um resistance to a really abusive state in Mexico in terms of if you're an indigenous person um, and she's, you know, giving credit to those people. So I loved the way she spoke about that and kind of wanted to honor that in that chapter. Again, placing the kind of political context, um, uh, like front and center at her as a political actor, not as someone that just kind of happened to be there. Um, So, um, yeah, yeah.
0: Is he, I I that's I think that's fantastic. And I think, so you say that on page 23. So on page 23, you say, uh, Teresa knew that the Yaquis acted on their own initiative as they always had, and she would not deny them their agency by taking credit, right? Um, but it, I, I love that you included, there's, there's a section in here for the listeners, there's a section in here on yaki history of resistance where a really fantastic uh, broad history of um, resistance to colonizers, encroachment of land. Um, but I'm interested, and, and we can definitely talk about that. But I'm interested to get into the life of Santa Teresa. Right? Who was she as a child? How did she get her gift, her don? How does she become Santa Teresa?
1: Yes, thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, there's, and I and I appreciate that you also appreciated that Yaki section because it um, was really important to me to include that and so yes but so so her life how does she become a santa? How does she become a Corandera? So in this this first chapter how does she become the Mexican Joan of Arc um she so she is born um, her mother um, Cayetana Chavez um, was a was 14 years old when Teresa Urrea was born um, and she was probably it's a little bit unclear but probably working as like a maid um, on um, Tomás Urrea. Teresa Urrea's father. He was, you know, a mestizo. Um, Tomas Urrea was an ascendado, a big landowner in S- Sinaloa and Sonora, um, the northwestern states of Mexico. Um, he drew his lineage back to the Basque country, actually. So he's definitely of that class of Mexicans um, in this period, you know, the, that very much the upper land owning class. I mean, he's not a a huge, huge landowner, but he's significant—you um, know—a significant employer of of people in that region. Um, and so, this is the, the context that she's born in. So, um, you know, I have a couple quotes um, in the chapter where she talks about her lineage, and she talks. She says, some, or she's quoted as saying, "I am quote unquote not an, a legitimate child," meaning you know, her father had many, many children. I think over 14 or 15 children, um, with his wife. So Don Tomás Urrea was married. Um, his wife didn't always live on the hacienda with him. She lived in another place and he had, you know, children with other women. And so her mother was one of those women. Um, and, um, so I wanted also to like in this part of the book, um, talk about her mother and, um, who's often, you know, because she's she eventually comes as a teenager to live on her father's hacienda, and then her name changes from the name her mother gave her, which is um, uh, Maria Rebecca Chavez. <laughs> um, you know, it's in in she, she becomes T- Teresa, Teresita is her nickname and takes eventually her father's last name. So it's like this, you know. So her poor indigenous mother young right is just kind of almost completely written out of the story although um Luis urea the novelist writes beautifully about this in his book the hummingbird's daughter so um but like as a historian i wanted to kind of draw out that a little bit her that part of her story but she does um uh as a as a as a teenager move into from living with her mother um in an indigenous community um to living moving to the big house um, with her father. And it's there, and she's about 16 years old, um, that she lo- that she kind of takes up with the healer, with the curandera um, on the ranch. And of course, every big ranch has a, a curandera, or at least one who will help deliver babies and sometimes, sometimes help with animals, but just help with, you know, healing and things like that um, for the employees on, on Tomás Urrea's ranch. And so Tadecita just kind of takes up with this woman and is really, I think, apprenticed by her and uh, shows a gift of, of being able to heal. Um, there's a lot I didn't include in this part because there's so much I could have included, but that she really was known to be really good at um, uh, uh, as working as a partera, as a midwife. Um, so she sh- exhibited this you know, knack for healing Um, very early on and then she has her dawn experience um, which um, in the as 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 you know in the kind of history of or the 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 culture of coranderismo the practice of coranderismo part of um, what gives a corandera her power is that she has been given this gift to heal and there's kind of this understanding um, that they've had this experience of the dawn experience Um, so for Teresa Urrea she has this experience where she kind of goes into these, first of all, these kind of um, almost seem like epileptic um, kind of uh, uh, a fits, quote unquote fits is how they would write about it. But she um, had this experience and not sure what, how, what was going on with her physically. It's hard to know based on the sources, but she had this experience kind of a near death experience. And then for several weeks, she was sort of in a trance state and it was during this kind of liminal period where people weren't sure what was going on with her. Was she even going to survive? Um, That she uh, had the visitation um, by some sources, say the Virgin, um, uh, or heard the voice of God that basically gave her this gift to heal. And then this is after this moment, um, after this dawn experience, she really begins to heal people on her own, um, not under the apprenticeship of Maria Sonora, the Corindera that she was kind of working with and and tagging along with before, but sort of word spreads throughout this region of Sinaloa and Sonora, and even across the border that there's this young girl healer, and she can heal by laying on hands. There's this energy that comes from her hands or she would heal with her own saliva or with mud. These early cures of that, that are documented are often her using the mud, the earth um, or her own saliva. Um, and sometimes even her own blood in the cures. So, um, so she, how, yeah. Just starts, quickly, how how
0: old is she at this point? She's like 18 years old. Okay. Okay.
1: At this point, 17 or 18 years old. So a yeah. teenager. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And so she is, so this is like, you know, 1889, 1890. Um, and then, and then on the ranch that in, in the community she lives with. So her mother, um, and her mother's side of the family are Tahoeco Indi- Indian. So Tohono Mayo, um, Mayo uh, and 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 Yaqui indigenous peoples are all kind of, this is their homeland, this area that that, that where her father's hacienda is. So she's also known among them and, and they kind of, and I talk about in this chapter how these different groups um, see her, or some of the people, um, some of these indigenous people see her as a kind of healer that they would recognize in their indigenous communities. And then of course, and then Mestizo and other Mexicans see her as a curandera. So she you know, just becomes this person that is known to be kind of a miraculous healer. And it's at this point early on that some begin to call her Santa Teresa or La Santa de Cabora. The Cabora is the name of the ranch that she lives at, her father's ranch. And so just it's really an incredible story, Jonathan. I mean, even as I think about it, like, you know, uh, uh, journalists from Mexico City come to document this, and the big newspapers in Mexico City write about her. Not full-page spreads, but she's definitely in the papers. And love most of these papers are very cynical um, about her and you know but they're documenting the fact that hundreds some of the papers say thousands of people are coming to the ranch um, her father even builds like a little house for her a little hut that she can go into to get relief from the sun and relief from healing so really very quickly she develops this reputation not only as a powerful healer or coindera but also as this sort of divinely sanctioned healer as a santa like a, a people's saint or a folk saint.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and yeah, I, I think that's it, it, it very clearly shows how she becomes very popular, very kind of regionally famous, uh, regionally famous yeah. in this region. And then in 1896, she's exiled to the United States. What, what happens then? And then what happens maybe in the aftermath when she comes to the United States? Where does she go? Uh, and what's the what's the sort of response to her in 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 this new region?
1: okay yes great so she so she eventually is exiled from mexico it's actually 1892 that she's officially um that she officially is that diaz basically um says gives her and her father a choice to either go like southern mexico go to like the yucatan um or to go across the border but the order was the kind of their their you know was to get far away from this region because the region that she was in was a place also um where um, the Mexican government wanted to develop uh, a railroad going through indigenous land, which was why they were wanting the Mayo and Yaqui land um, and really fighting. So, and again, that that's, that's this whole kind of Mexican context, but really tied to the border because he was giving um, all these different, um, you know, uh, really great deals, land deals to people that would come in and and develop, help develop this railroad that would go through, like, ideally it would have gone through like Chihuahua, um, Texas, Chihuahua, then come through Sonora and um, go through much indigenous land. So, so she's disrupting, this progress, right, this modernizing progress, which is such a part of um, the Mexican state building um, at this time period. So yes, so so she leaves her and her father and others leave Sonora in 1892. Um, and rather than go far the other side of the border, they land, you know, in, you know, Nogales and then some other towns just very close to the border with Sonora. And people continue to come and see her, um, you know, in this, this time period, people cross the border, more or less easily. Um, and there's, you know, family and, and work on, you know, it's more of a fluid region, um, of course, but we see it beginning to kind of harden also in this period. Um, so she on the other side of the border, it's really interesting, you know, so again, she still um, has people crossing the border to come see her, but word has spread. So even in newspapers that I saw, like local you know, Arizona, news, Arizona territory newspapers and Texas newspapers are writing about her at the same time, like Mexican newspapers are writing about her. So it really, her story also shows Jonathan how the border region is really fluid, you know, in this period, you see the same kinds of stories and people. So she's, I think, in many places known already when she crosses the border. Um, but so she be, she she continues to heal. And um, if from about 1892 to 1896, when this Tennessee's rebellion breaks out, she's a, more or less under the radar. You know, and I say under the radar in terms of kind of, The Tetisista Rebellion really puts this indigenous uprising really gets her name out there again in papers, um, in in newspapers far and more far and wide. But she is still the government. You know, watches her. Diaz has people following her and her father because they continue to. Um, agitate against his government, now doing it from this side of the border. They're producing a news, different newspapers that spread the word about sort of the corruption of the Diaz regime. So she's doing her healing and there's this newspaper. So it's, you know, more or less quiet. Um, people are seeing her, but also, you know, she's seen by other communities. Um, I mean, mostly I would say, you know, 80, 90 percent um ethnic Mexicans, people of Mexican descent and indigenous people are her adherents or her clients, but also Anglos come. I mean, she um, is seen also as a kind of curiosity, I think. But, and so, um, and she is lighter skinned, so she doesn't look indigenous right in the way that some of the Yaqui Sistas will look. Um, so she is seen as almost this kind of, you know, a borderlands person, someone that might be accepted maybe into Anglo society. Um, so she kind of occupies that space. And, you know, as these, as the years go on, and then when the 1896 rebellion breaks out, um, she, for, uh, and, and and years after that, she, um, uh, they move further away from the border to, um, like salt, like Solomonville, Arizona, and then Clifton, Arizona. Um, and in Clifton, Arizona, in the like late 1899s, like 1889, uh, 1899, um, she gets married. Um, and this marriage like lasts for just a minute. Um, and so, uh, and, um, She marries this man who um, then, as the story goes, tries to kill her. (laughs) Um, And so there's lots of speculation on what was going on here. Um, I don't spend a ton of time with that um, in the book. But what I do talk about is how after the marriage doesn't work, um, she leaves her father's home. Um, She's been living with her father this whole time. um, And at this time, she's in her like she's 20, 27 at this point, I should need to refer to my book here, but she's in her, you know, mid to late twenties and she leaves and she goes on this kind of leaves with some friends. Um, I think some sort of, you know, wealthy friends that they've made in Clifton, Arizona, her family, um, to heal a sick child in, um, San Jose, California. And she does that in 1900 and then just stays, um, in, in California for a while and develops a reputation there as a healer. And this is really where she, um, begins to sort of heal on stage and, and heal to a much broader audience. Um, mm.
0: Yeah. And, and
1: so this is kind of getting into chapter
0: two, so let, let's move into it. So you really do a fantastic job at, at situating, you know, Teresa's movements and mobility within the developing strains of, of science and medicine, Um, And I'm curious why this is important for you to do, uh, specifically contextualizing the medical marketplace and the world of ideas in the late 19th and early 20th century and situating Teresa uh, within within all of those happenings.
1: Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. And yes, and so in this chapter, laying on hands, um, it is a that's exactly those contexts I wanted to address, which were, again, sort of like so. If in, in the first chapter I wanted to show that she was politically engaged, right, and all the things that politics mean in terms of that Mexican and, and borderlands context, um, so in this chapter I want to show that she's also not, and, and Cuanderas and Cuandarismo broadly are not sidelines to healing um, and peeling practices or other kinds of religious practices. And even the whole process, again, in this period of, um, the profession of medicine kind of asserting its authority, um, that she's, she's in these worlds, this, right, this marketplace of ideas. Um, that's so fascinating. So, so I, again, so showing that she's right there in the thick of it, she's right there in the stew of it and she's part of it and influencing it. And so, um, so yeah, that is something that I that I thought. But at the same time, to show that still her identity as a Mexican woman is important, and serving her community also remains really important as well. And so I didn't want to, you know, what because I'm an Anglo person, only say, well, wait, oh yeah, she heals Anglos and Anglos like her too, and then just focus on that. Although that's you know something to talk about. But if you really look at, or for me really looking at it, she still is. She is speaks to her community um, still. um, And even, even during her time of healing on stages in San Francisco. And then she does this healing tour where she goes across the United States, um, stops in St. Louis, lives in New York City for a while, has a child in New York City, and then comes back to the West Coast to Los Angeles. During this whole time, you know, she is always healing um, her community. I mean, as well as making a name for herself in these spiritualist circles and these theosophy circles and and, curious health seekers um, coming to her. So she's really kind of making a name for herself among, yeah, in this metal market, mental, I'm sorry, medical medical, uh, marketplace of ideas, but serving her community as well. and, you know, one thing that I kind of touch on in chapter one that I carry through to chapter two is her identity. I think they haven't mentioned yet as an espiritista. So she um, and this was really one of the connections that I saw, like that really clearly goes across the border um, in this uh, kind of transnational connection of spiritualism and, and spiritism, where in Mexico, a group of espiritistas or spiritists people that follow um, Alan Kardec and spiritism um, you know channeling the dead for um, healing and and, and among other things that she was sort of observed by lots of people when she was in Cabora. lots of people came you know agents of the state and curious people physicians and then people to see to be healed by her would just observe her and write about her and so did these espiritistas um, from some from um, the circle in Mexico City but mostly from their in Sonora, and they uh, said she's an Espiritista. She's not a Cuenadera. She's not a Santa. Those are just things people call her because they're again, using this kind of very derogatory way of thinking about um, indigenous and poor people. They're, you know, they're ignorant. They don't know any better. So they call her a Santa. They call her a Guantara. But really, she's an espiritista. So these very educated espiritistas uh, kind of took her on and she herself became really engaged with spiritism. And I, and I quote her in different places talking about how she says that's the identity or the religion that she most closely adheres to. And you see, and uh, newspapers or, or periodicals from spiritualists that they're um, they're talking about her practice in Mexico and then following her to the United States, and. I wish Jonathan that was one of the things I wish I could have seen even more. And I think if I had even to go back and do more research, like more connections between those two groups, but the connections are definitely there. And so I kind of draw those out. How she's able to take on this identity of an Espiritista and that kind of morphs a little bit into spiritualists, um, spiritual healers, and and um, you know clairvoyance, which would advertise in the same newspapers that she would advertise um, as a healer as well. Um, to show how she's part of these circuits of, you know, different kinds of ways of thinking about healing and religion that are really moving across really oceans and borders at this time. And she's there and people are are seeing her as these different things. Um, to some, she's a Santa, to some, she's a Corandera, to some, she's an Espiritista, um, or to some, she's really all of these things. And so that's, you know, I guess the one of the things I wanted to kind of trace out in chapter two, um, laying on, laying on hands. Um,
0: yeah, and, and I think it's I, I think one thing that I noticed, especially in Santa, uh, Santa Teresa's chapters, is that you really see the development of, and the curiosity of her figuring out the origins of her own healing powers. You know, there's a part where, you know, she said, you, you write, or she says, like, I want to travel the world and see where uh, different different genealogies of this power comes from, right? Unfortunately, she doesn't get to do that. But she's also we also see her curiosity of, of her own being.
1: Yes, exactly. Love, yeah. Thank you for pointing that out, Jonathan, because yeah, she is, she's a, a woman in her twenties who has lived this incredible life and she, um, is self-reflective of it. And, 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 and she knows she knows she has power. She knows she has this healing power, but wanting to know where it comes from. And it is kind of this, um, really great part of her story. And the kind of the sad part of her story is that she dies so young, um, in 1906, she's 33 years old, um, and she, uh, part of what takes her away from that, that journey or that potential tour that she really plans to do again, to seek, to continue to seek out her power. I think even her tour in the United States, she's doing that. Um, but you know, as you, there's that very specific quote from her, but she has a baby in, um, in, in New York, when New York city, and then she has another child, um, and I think what brings her back to the borderlands or what brings her back to Arizona and Clifton to is her father dies. And then she has two children. And, you know, I, I think I, I say this in the book, but, you know, she's a woman um, in a time period where she's lived an extraordinary life, but here she is now with two children, her father's died and taking care of those children, coming back to the family, I think is important for her. Um, but the compromise, of course, is that she doesn't do that tour. her. She doesn't um, seek out, you know, because she has family obligations and not to say that she thought of those in any kind of negative way. I don't know that she did at all. But but I do. There's a kind of I think, ah, you know, it was a plan. It was a plan to go see the world that that that, that got cut short. Um, and then, of course, she ends ends her life um, in Clifton, Arizona. Uh, and she dies of tuberculosis, um, which so many people did in, in this period as well. Um,
0: mm-hmm. I, I think just quickly to touch on something super fascinating about Teresa um, is about the fast, especially on the U.S. side, the fascination with her hands and electricity. This connection that you make, I think, is 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 so interesting on page. 65, you say, um, Teresa's hands, as described in these articles, and here you're talking about articles written that by people in San Francisco and other major cities, you say, uh, Teresa's hands, as described in these articles, became conduits and signifiers of turn-of-the-century notions about gender, modernity, and race. They were lovely, here, her hands were lovely, slender, gentle, magnetic, electric, and white. Um, I want to hear you talk more about about this quote because I think it's so fascinating.
1: Oh, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for like reading That's, I love, uh, that said that, love. I really thought about that <laughs> that part um, and that quote and all the things. So yeah, so yes. Yeah, so as like, as you say, there's all this focus on her hands. So the chapter laying on hands and this kind of, right. And this is um the, you know, whereas in, in Mexico, the focus was she'd kind of use mud to heal. They did talk about her hands, but it was other things. But here it's her, these amazing, like feminine, beautiful, all those things, right from that quote, her hands that as conduits of power, but right. That the hands are white and, and that, that here, again, she has this identity as someone who's light-skinned, right? I mean, she's she's Mexican, but her father's very light-skinned. Her mother's very, you know, dark-skinned, indigenous. So she occupies this space. Or I think she's allowed into these spaces or, you know, given entry into these spaces because of that, because of that whiteness. Because this is also, of course, the early 1900s. This is the period of, like, the Jim Crow South, right? This is the period of segregation in the Wan Crow South and in the in the borderlands, um, and whiteness is is a thing. It's still a thing, right? But it's like a thing here, and um, and I. And one of the arguments I make, and I have all these other quotes I didn't put in, Jonathan, about um, I kind of touch on them, how her healing and even with Don Pedrito sometimes that they'll like journalists that write about them will write about all these cures they they would make. And for her, it was always, well, she also healed these elite white people from El Paso or whatever. Or, yes, she heals, quote unquote, throngs of of Mexicans, right? Throngs, nameless, faceless masses. But it's like, oh, here's a name of a man right? A white man. And that's like the legitimate le- legitimizer of her power. It feels like in these articles. And so this, so this kind of whiteness, I think is really what puts her in this position. And it, and it reveals also, you know, how, of a healing story that I talk about in this chapter, that really was one of the stories in my research that stuck with me the most. The story of um, this man, um, Tomas Garcia, is his name, and he um, and it's just an article in the Los Angeles Times. It's like in a back page. Um, there's you know lots of articles about her when she lives in LA. Um, and, you know, because people would come to see her and she was again, this kind of known person because she performed on stages and had this reputation. But there's a story of this, this missed opportunity, this man, Tom, Tomas Garcia, um, who comes to see her, he's dying of tuberculosis or consumption as it was kind of called back then in the early 20th century, um, and he, he didn't make it. He got so close to her. He ended up dying in a lodging house, just really close to the neighborhood that she lived in, like the Sonora town or Boyle Heights neighborhood in LA. Um, but the story, and then the story goes, he, you know, he dies surrounded by his fellow Mexicans, by his fellow countrymen, um, who would not let a doctor attend him. And so um, dies unattended was the name of this article in the newspaper. And I wonder when I was doing research, I just pulled this story out and it just stuck with me for so many reasons. It's just like so close, right? He almost gets to see her before he passes. And the story is sort of one of last chance where they couldn't heal him. And so his he was from like Escondido um, outside of LA and made this journey to see her, you know, and his sort of last chance dies without seeing her surrounded on his deathbed by his fellow countrymen. So like, they're supporting him. Right. And they won't let a doctor see him. And I'm like, so I want to peel that back a little bit. Why wouldn't they let a doctor see him? Um, and then this is, and this took me Jonathan, down the doing reading all this great literature by like Alexandra Ministern and Natalia Molina about public health and race, uh, Emily Abel, these different things I read, what's going on in, with public health and race. Well, this whole racial ideology, um, and this time period categorizes, um, you know, physicians uh, would do this and scientific journals would say some bodies are more, more dangerous, more prone to diseases, Um, brown bodies, black bodies, right? And literally, so as then I started reading literature from the time I read this whole, like many pages of this, this, this whole treatise on tuberculosis by a physician who taught it and all this racial um, explanation of people that are, more prone to get tuberculosis, carry the disease. So well, how this filters into public health is that, you know, if you're a brown person in LA and you look sick, right, um, they want you out of the city. And so I think his fellow countrymen probably knew what would happen to his body if they let the physicians and the public health officials get a hold of it. So they protected him from that. And so the whole idea of teresa Urea, you know, her, the whiteness of her hands giving her this space to move in this, this very, very racialized world. Um, but here's, you know, this story of someone who comes to see her who doesn't have white hands. And um, he's, so I guess that's my very long winded way. I'm sorry. I'm going on too much about, all, um, but I think that, that, that was again, that, that context. So there's the medical marketplace of ideas. I wanted to include her in, in this chapter, but also a very racialized context um, uh, uh, in, in all of, you know, all of um the United States in this period um, in terms of, of segregation and, and really, you know, the height of white supremacy. And it filters into these stories, even though it may not be said explicitly um, in the documents, because it was just kind of known. It was just the assumption that I think people went with. So mm-hmm.
0: yeah, I, I think one of the more gripping kind of questions you ask in relation to Tobas Garcia, right? The story of the unattended death and Santa Teresa, you say. How can we understand this contradiction, where one Mexican body delivers sickness and another healing? And I think that 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 really concisely filters down the, all of this literature, all of this contradiction about gender and race and healing and medicine and public health at the turn of the twentieth century. Um, and I think just to kind of wrap up the Santa Teresa portion, um, you and maybe to tie in Don Pedrito, you're talking about how both of these healers were forms of culturally accepted and trusted care, right? The reason Tomas Garcia was traveling all of this way to come see Santa Teresa was wasn't only because either either other other, other professional medical doctors failed him. Or, you know, he couldn't find somebody closer, but he felt trusted, he felt connection to Santa Teresa wherever she was, even in her mobilities.
1: Yes. Yes, so yes, Jonathan. Then that's a great, like, kind of I think thing to segue to to the Don Pedrito is that people made these journeys um, to see these healers, um, and it's again because they had the 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 reputation, um, and they were and they were trusted by their community. And then I think that for just to kind of say one final thing about Teresa Urea and then talk about Don Pedrito's um, stories as well, um, that she performed her healing on stages in in San Francisco, and so. So a lot of the, a little bit of what had been earlier things had been written about her um, at the time, and then a little bit of some of the analysis afterward, um, you know, was that she lost her kind of authenticity when she left the borderlands, when she put herself in front of, you know, audiences, um, you know, white audience or just not her community. Um, That's when she lost her power. There's this kind of theme that went, went through a lot of the early scholarship on her. And I just really, and so the, wanted to push against that, right? I think it's I think it's unfair to her that she couldn't do both things, right that it and, and so, um, and I know another um, Brandon Bain has written about wrote a really great article about her um in a religious studies journal. I forget which one I think church history, um but you know he t- talks really about all the spaces that she inhabited, all the different spaces she would heal in. and I think she did both. I mean, she did perform her healing in the, the, and, and, but she also was always very known in her community and people were, and and, you know, that Tomas Garcia, that's just one story that made it to the paper that we know about, but there were probably thousands of people like that, that made that journey that heard she was in LA and, you know, save their money and, and in the hope that they could see her and, and get that healing touch because of the reputation she had built um, of being this, really generous and legitimate healer. So yeah. So similarly, right. With, with Don, Don Pedrito too, um, as you know, uh, people made journeys to see him.
0: Yeah. Wow. What, what is she, I mean, she, she was a fantastic woman and I, I'm so happy that I got to read <laughs> the two chapters that you wrote about her because I, I had known about her, um, but I had known about, oh, about yeah, she's, uh, she's... Don Pedrito though. Yes. So Jennifer, my relationship with Don Pedro is interesting because I grew up in South Texas near a small town near Corpus Christi, and I had family who lived in Falfurias, and so we would be in Falfurias all the time, you know, especially for Easter, you know, so Christmas, those kinds of things, and so um, I remember my tia would always would all, when I was younger would always mention um don pedrito and so then one time i i was maybe like 11 10 or 11 and i asked her like who who like who is this like who are you talking about and so um eventually she took me to see the um the site of where his uh i'm forgetting what it's called but like the the his his like memorial shrine. Thank you so much. Thank you for the word. Uh, his shrine. And I just found it so fascinating to see how many people had gone through there just purely by the amount of of things left, of notes left, of prayers left. And so um, I was very excited to to read your book and learn more about uh, Don Pedrito because uh, understanding and really contextual, that moment now, I think, reading your book contextualized that moment of visiting the shrine with, with my tia. And so can you tell us listeners about about who Don Padrito is? What's his history? What are his origins?
1: Yes, absolutely, and thanks for sharing that story. And the, the shrine is such a special place. Um, so yeah, so Don Pedrito uh, crossed the border or came to from Mexico to the United States, probably in like the 1880s. Um, we don't, I couldn't track down like an exact date. Um, but what is kind of known is that he uh, lived in in Jalisco, Mexico, um, outside on the outskirts of Guadalajara, um, and was. Did a variety of jobs, probably was a sheep herder or something like that. But when he decided to cross the border, the first time he crossed the border um, into the South Texas region, um, where you're from, he was likely uh, like a, a, a carrying things like mezcal or tequila, um, transporting some goods across the border to sell in South Texas. Um, and so, kind of the first sort of story about him is that in, in somewhere in the 1880s, he's selling mezcal to. Um, a a party at the Canales ranch. And so the Canales family, as I'm sure you know, is this really famous Tejano family, um, especially with J.T. Canales, Jose Tomás Canales, um, one of the sons of Don Andrés and Tomasita Canales, who became, of course, very influential in LULAC and Mexican-American civil rights and um, so many things. Um, So he kind of, in the 1880s, you know, was, uh, you know, probably selling things again, maybe mezcal, maybe tequila, but also he um, had the the service of being a curandero and he becomes known um, quite quickly as someone that people can go to for healing and sort of sets up, sets himself up um, in, in that, in that felt outside of Falfurrias and what comes to be known as Los Olmos um, ranch, um, which is around where his shrine is today. Um, So So he, word just sort of spreads throughout the South Texas uh, region that there's this man, this curandero from Mexico, and he's really good at healing. Um, His style of healing is different from Santa Teresa. the, the stories that people tell about his healing, and there's so many stories that people told about his healing at the time and sort of continue to tell, is that he would very quickly um, be able to assess someone for what they were sick with. Sometimes he would seem to know perhaps what they were sick with before they came, or he could quickly assess what was wrong, and he would then quickly write a receta or sort of a prescription for them Um and his his recetas or his cures, his prescriptions, often involved things like water, drinking a certain amount of um, amount of water or bathing in water. Um, but also, they might involve things like um, taking a shot of tequila or drinking a beer or drinking coffee or um, eating onions or really taking in things that were easy to find. So nothing elaborate. Um, no, it's in, at least that I found in my research. Um, No real elaborate cures, just some very basic things. Um, Get up in the morning and drink three glasses of water and then say a prayer. Um, Maybe put some something under your bed at night, um, and then get in the mo- up in the morning and take cold baths, or or sometimes using herbs of, of the region, um, things growing on the hill, or you know making a, a kind of concoction of something, um, a tea or something of a, a local herbs that you could easily find. And so, just really quickly, Jonathan, his 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 reputation as a curandero spread throughout this community to the point where. Um, People begin to um, come to see him uh, in in large numbers. I don't think as large as Santa Teresa that the documentation of of sometimes thousands of people coming to see her um, at the Rancho de Cabora um, is pretty solid. But definitely, you know, dozens, if not sometimes hundreds of people would come to Los Olmos over that turn of the century period, like. 1880s, 1890s, into the early 1900s um, to be cured by Don Pedrito. And then he would also sometimes make house visits or um, kind of most famously, he goes to San Antonio um, in the year 1902, 1904, and sort of does healing there for about a month, kind of has like, I guess we call it a residency in San Antonio, and people come um, to see him for cures. And he's written about in the San Antonio Express and other newspapers, Yeah. And
0: and I think what I found really fascinating, the difference between Santa Teresa and Don Pedrito is that, you know, when Santa Teresa comes to the United States, she's, she's traveling quite often. Her mobility is, is, is is noted in newspapers. She's in San Francisco. She's in, you know, San Jose, she's in uh, New York. uh, But, but Don Pedrito kind of stays in Los Olmos and in that, in that kind of South Texas region. And I like the contextualization you provide us in the book. You say, you know, Don Pedrito healed in South Texas during a time that Anglo invasion dominated, right, ethnic Mexican and Tejanos in all aspects of society. And I find that fascinating because if you think about it, it isn't until really like the turn of the 20th century or early 20th century that these towns end up starting to be founded by, you know, Midwestern Anglo settlers coming into Texas, South Texas at this time. So it makes complete sense. And so then you go on to say, You know, you go on to write on page 89, you said, uh, you say, Don Pedrito emerged as a source of spiritual healing and material support for a transnational community facing social change, illness, and an increasingly oppressive racial system, or rather racial regime. And so I'm curious if you can talk about Don Pedrito's impact on community of South Texas, right? not only individual healing, but healing community as well.
1: Yes, thank you for that question, um, Jonathan. And that was yes. One, thank you for that quote as well. Um, it was important for me to kind of contextualize and show that yet that both things, like as you said, that he was healing bodies um, that were sick, and successfully did that, and that built his reputation. But um, as all historians know. We, things don't exist without context. And so what often isn't written about or wasn't, what I didn't see in the writings about Don Pedrito was this time he was living in, as you say, was this time of a real, um, as as so many scholars have written about and continue to write about, um, uh, influential to me was the work of David Montejano um, about this kind of takeover or this attempted takeover uh, of Anglos right in this in, in the South Texas area where um, you had Mexicanos, you had Tejanos, um, like for, for example, the famous Canales family and other you know, wealthy families, big land-owning families, and other more modest you know, families that um, in this period we see, you know, after the US-Mexico War of 1848 and moving forward, Anglos moving in, Anglo ranchers moving in, homesteading and really bring. With them, um, this this racial system of white white supremacy, um, quite frankly, um, and um, and how did this these communities face that and deal with that? Um, and another layer that's going on in this period, of course, is with this kind of new racial regime um, is is lynching um, violence against. Um, brown people um, in this region, just as it was happening in the southern region of the United States against uh, black people, you have a similar thing happening in this region. And um, so he, you hear Don Pedrito sits um, in this place where these things are going on, where, you know, we begin to see the Texas Rangers um, come into play defending Anglo ranchers and all these things. So so I wanted to kind of look at his cures and look at his life and see um, and, and show that and the, even though i don't have words from him like i i had you know i could find words from santa teresa where she really spoke to the injustices of the porfiriato at, at least in terms of my research and i would love it if someone else could uncover, um, you know, the words of Don Pedrito talking about this, but, so we don't see those words, but here he is in the thick of it, healing people, healing people's bodies, and also the community, as you say, so um, one of the things that that Don Pedrito did is that he didn't charge for his cures, um, and, but people would gift him things, and that's kind of the economy of cuenderismo, at least for Don Pedrito it was, and he was known to give, back to the community. So if um, a wealthier person would give him a a large gift, or often he would be given pieces of land, um, he was known to put those gifts back into the community by producing food on that land. Um, And then when people would come to see him, he would have food, he would, had hired people to prepare food for them, to make coffee, so that they'd come and, and want to be healed, sometimes he'd say, spend the night, you know, you can sleep over here, here's some food, rest up, um, drink water, and and then I'll assess you. So there's many healing stories like that, where he's sort of taking care of people, not just a quick in and out, sort of like we sometimes experience with a doctor. No, not to critique doctors, they're under a lot of pressure to quickly assess patients, but this is a really different system of healing. So, you know, he's He's here healing people and taking care of their bodies, um, taking care of the community. The one example I think that shows this probably better, more specifically than kind of this more general sense of him healing the community is when there's a, a serious drought um, in, in South Texas in the 1890s. Um, and it kind of coincides with the larger uh, depression um, of, of 1893 that students of history know, know about. Um, but in South Texas, so there's this this national depression of 1893. And then there's a drought um, which compounds that depression and really affects um, the cattle industry, the ranching industry there. Um, So in this period, it's very bad. I found like newspaper articles and oral interviews um, of people talking about how their cattle was just dying and just kind of desiccating and drying out um, on their land. Um, One story I even heard, I had an interview I had with a a gentleman from Falfurius who talked about his great grandfather, that used to tell stories of cutting out the tongues of the cattle because it was the only thing that they could salvage um, to make some money off of. But people were starving um, in this region. And um, and the state of Texas at that time was giving out, because of this depression, they were giving out, you know, um, some resources, some food, um, corn and beans and things of this nature. Um, and they used Don Pedrito's Ranch at Los Almos as a place of distribution um, for these for, for this relief, basically, from the state. And sort of when I learned about that, I was like, wow, there he's already doing that. So the sort of the state is following this local healer, this local community healer, Corandero, because he's always already doing the things that the state is late in doing, or even doesn't do as well as someone healing his own community. And it's, he's a known person because of, because he is this kind of community healer. So That I think is one example of how he is kind of central um, to this community and healing them and supporting them and this Really incredible map that um, was pointed out to me by, and I don't know if you know Homero Vera, who um, is very much a part of this community and and looks after the shrine and and looks after local history and has been just a wonderful friend and, and 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 source of information for me. He pointed out this map of 1892 that I have in that chapter, that shows kind of the different roads, you know, and the cities Corpus Christi and all the different towns in, in South Texas, and if you look at the map close. Obviously, Homero pointed out to me. You see that most the, the the town where most of the roads kind of lead to is Los Olmos, and this is, as you know, a very small rural place. But here in eighteen ninety two, and actually on a map, we see roads going to to Don Pedrito, which is why I was inspired to re- name that chapter "All Roads Lead to Don Pedrito." Because literally the community made those roads by coming to him and Don Pedrito made those roads, um, not the state, not, you know, and, and they, they're they following what the community is already doing um, in this period. So, um, so I think that, like, again, like I said, there's, while there's no, I, I try to deeply contextualize Don Pedrito in this period Um of all kinds of 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 strife happening um um racial and otherwise and and again the drought and 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 you have the continuing story of land loss, um, which, you know, begins after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, where Anglos move in and buy land from Tejanos who need to sell when things are bad, or sometimes simply take land, intimidate people out of, you know, uh, uh, from their land. And there's just a huge amount of land loss from Mexicanos and Tejanos in this period, when big, big ranchers move in, like, you know, most famously the King and the Kennedy ranches. Again, David Montejano talks about about this It's kind of his thesis is that in this period you see what he calls a pro- proletariatization, not sure if I'm saying that correctly, of Mexicanos, a shift of people that once owned land or at be now becoming the working, the workers, the proletariat for the Anglos moving in and and, and buying up and all kinds of nefarious and quote unquote legal but not legal ways. And here sits Don Pedrito as this community healer within that kind of nexus Um uh, happening at mm. that time period.
0: Yeah, I think that that's that's incredibly fascinating especially because as you talk about and as as you write in the book about how mm-hmm. you know Los Almos Don Pedrito and this community in particular were was was functioning as a sort of informal welfare at times of depression or at times of racial strife when the state was wasn't keeping up um, or didn't have didn't have literally inroads into those locations to like do this work. And, and so it's interesting that, you know, in one end, uh, in Texas, that you see the state kind of mimicking or following what's happening at Los Olmos. And then in the other end, later on in 1930, you see, you know, the newspaper La Prensa, um, completely, you know, denounce curanderismo, where, you know, Mexican President Calles comes to Visit Nino Fidencio and he, he, he sees a curandero, and then La Prensa completely is like, that's a backwards kind of black magic. Um, and it, like us as a modern state should be better than that. And so I'm curious to hear how, in this way, the state is now revoking curanderismo as, as, a, as a viable practice of healing.
1: Yes. Thank you, Jonathan, for that question. Yeah. And that's like, um, in the clutches of black magic, this, this article in La Prensa, a Spanish, uh, language newspaper, um, uh, coming out of San Antonio. And also they have in you know, Los Angeles. But yes, yeah, so you have this kind of organ, this newspaper that really speaks for and speaks to, um, Mexican Americans. But I, as in doing research on La Prensa, and that particular story, which really characterizes, as you say, um, uh, um and people that seek coranderos as quote unquote backward, right? And superstitious and all the things that a progressive modern people and state should not be. And that, that critique really comes from The kind of Mexican um, and and, and of course, I think U.S. notions of modernity and progress as well, but especially the the Mexican idea of, um, you know, and really in a a Mexican nation building at that time, um, sort of post-revolution, you know, you see a a segment of of the population really turning towards, um, you know, Saying we are not these things, we're not. We don't seek curanderos, We go to doctors, and this is an embarrassment, as you say. All the things that this article talks about, because of Caes, the president of Mexico at this time, um, seeking a curandero from the north, uh, El Nino Fidencio, um, who in the 1920s. Um, so after Don Pedrito has died, but in and in, a, in, in, in um, but on the and a in the borderlands as well, but on the Mexico side of the border also becomes this, is this very famous corridero that many people cross the border from the U.S. to see. And of course you have, you know, the symbol of progress and modernity, the president of Mexico coming to this border region to see a corridero, and it's critiqued by the Mexicano community or parts of um, the Mexicano community. And I think this was what was really interesting to me as I was doing more research on this and talking to people is the different, um, ways in which people build their identities. So there's, you know, the layer of the, the Mexicanos de afuera, the Mexicans out there, a lot of people that left Mexico during the revolution, some elites um, and, 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 and and took up residence in San Antonio um, who really see themselves as distinct from Tejanos uh, in some ways or, or Mexican-Americans or especially poor Mexican immigrant laborers. They There's definitely this kind of class, I think, that, um, you know, bias and prejudice coming from La Prensa that we see in that article. But they say that Don Pedrito, um, he was okay. He, but he, that, you know, that that we've moved forward, but in the, you know, the turn of the century, in the 1900s, there was a time and a place for cuanderismo, but now, again, we're modern and progressive. So the president of Mexico going to see a cuandero is absolutely an embarrassment. And so the reaction to this article um, by readers of La Prensa um, was voracious um, and, and defending Don Pedrito, which shows, again, that his reputation in the, he died in 1907. So here in the 1920s, 1930, people are still. Some people are praying to him. Some people still see him as the saint that can heal them, or at the very least, they see him as this wonderful um, healer of their community and someone who should be honored—a very honorable uh, person um, and and a healer. And um, and particularly um, a lot of the, f- the feedback and the anger towards this article in the prensa was also about the way they talked about colanderos as brujos a brujas or, um, you know, sorcerers. And so, um, the, the, some of the feedback was he wasn't a brujo. He wasn't a witch, a witch doctor, but he was a healer, a good person. Um, so that was, you know, kind of the part of the, the kind of, um, reaction to this as well. So it, the reaction was on a number of levels, um, to this idea, which again, it's an article in the Prensa, but it was a commonly held idea. And I loved that I found um, JT Canales um, came to the defense of Don Pedrito. So this is, you know, this connection that Don Pedrito had to the Canales family was really strong. Um, One of the chapters I opened with a story of of him healing Tomecita Canales um, when doctors couldn't. And so I think that, that his connection to this really important Tejano family, we can see it continues throughout his life. And after, so. Jose Tomas Canales, who's friends with the um, the editor of La Prensa, um, and I found that in doing some research on J.T. Canales, and I'm sure so many listeners will know. Again, mentioned that J.T. Canales was one of the founders of LULAC, but also a main person um, who a, a main figure in um, defending the Tejano community from violence against the Texas Rangers at risk of his own life. So he's also, I would say, a community healer, but in, in a, you know in a different kind of way than Don Pansvito was. So he writes an editorial to La La Prensa responding to this In the Clutches of Black Magic piece and saying, um, you know, not only was Don Pedrito uh, a legitimate healer, a curandero, he healed uh, J.T. Canales says in his in his rebuttal or his editorial, his guest editorial, he healed my mother when doctors couldn't. So like a really good lawyer, Canales takes his defense of Don Pedrito beyond just Don Pedrito himself as a good curandero, but as curanderismo, it is, is something that's legitimate and perhaps even better than than, you know, quote unquote, scientific medicine. He says the the medical científicos couldn't heal my mother and Don Pedrito could. And then, you know, I kind of extrapolate also this kind of sense of also these this culture and Mexican-American healing uh, uh, system is something that is legitimate and it's um, and it you know that it's not to be. Th- just, just a a sidelined in in terms of either from the Mexican um, elite perspective as something that's in the past or something that's not quite as good as this kind of elite Mexican identity, but also this kind of white supremacist identity. So, um, he really, um, uh, makes this incredible defense of Don Pedrito. And I guess I should note here, too, for, for the listeners that um, J.T. Canales also defended Don Pedrito in the year 19, I think it was 1902, um, when, um, was it 1900, right around there when um, Don Pedrito was being accused of um, of of defrauding people or, or, or pra- practicing fraudulent medicine. And so accusations of against healers by the American Medical Association or um, state medical associations. In this case it was the Texas Medical Association, um, against other kind of other kinds of healers was very prominent in this period. And this was a way for the medical per- profession to number one, kind of shore up their um their role as the authority on medicine um, and then by attacking other kinds of healers, which really in this period had legitimate medicine to offer um, as JT Canales defends um, Don Pedrito of as many other kinds of, uh, of healers as quote unquote professional medicines, medical, you know, uh, practitioners, medical scientificos, um, you know, JT Canales defends Don Pedrito and all these charges are, are, are dismissed because he wasn't defrauding people. He wasn't taking any money and he was literally healing people in this period. So, um, so yeah, that whole story, uh, that kind of framing the last part of my book really looks at identity and how it's interwoven with ideas about, um, healing kinds of healing and about Quindarismo and how that's so tied up in tied up to a Mexican and Mexican American identity. Mm.
0: And uh, yeah, and I think you do it incredibly well. I think the story of, of, Specifically, you know, J.T. Canales and how he, in chapter four, like I said, you open up with this denunciation of curanderismo from La Prensa from because they, they're critiquing, you know, President Calle is going to Nino Videncio. And then on the other end, you show how fiercely J.T. Canales, who should be right um, and is a... Uh, a depiction of Mexican-American progress or a depiction of ethnic Mexican progress in the United States specifically in Texas defending so fiercely this traditional practice of curanderismo um, and and defending Don Pedrito and I think I think it's it's it, I think the story of of the Canales family is fascinating because I had known I had known obviously of, of JT Canales and and his and his activism in 1919 against the Texas Rangers and other and Lulac and those sorts of things, but to hear this connection completely shifts my understanding of this historical figure, um, which I think is so exciting. Um, but but I, wanna, I wanna maybe take us towards the end of chapter four where uh, you, you talk about you know, Don Pedrito passing away. What does that look like? How does that come to fruition and how, how are people honoring him in this time in 1907?
1: Okay, yeah. Thanks, Jonathan. So he, um, so he uh, lives a very long life. So I, I, he crosses when he crosses the border in 1880. He's, I think, already in his probably 40s at that point. So, um, so he's, you know, elderly when he passes away and, and his death is you know, what's incredible about mm, his death is, there's very few images of Don Pedrito. I you know, found about, I think, four um, images of him and, and searched, searched far and wide. Um, and one of them is this funeral. And this, there's a couple different like views of this one picture. There's one where the lens goes way back. Um, and you see, so you see, there's like a little, I think it's probably at Los Olmos, um, like a little, um, uh, uh a place where his, his coffin is laid out. And then there's like a kind of a, 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 framing around it. And close up, there's men, and I think the men I've identified, many of them are, you know, leaders of the community, um, and the coffin bearers. And as you see, there's some women standing behind. And then on top of this um, little dwelling that the this little kind of shed that the, that the coffin is around, there's people sitting on top of it. And then when the camera co- co- pans out even further, you see just rows and rows of people um, at his funeral. Um, and so I, the first image I'd seen of the, his funeral the 1907 funeral was just a very close up one. And then I found other images and there's, you know, hundreds of people that are there honoring him and behind his coffin is an American flag and a Mexican flag. Um, and I just, it's, it's so powerfully speaks to um, his life, Here he is being honored and his identity um, and and, and this region's identity is both Mexican, as both American and both sort of proudly displayed behind his coffin. Um, And um, and so that's, and, and, and then people writing about his healing afterward, you know, sharing stories of his healing. And I found in one newspaper, this woman wrote a beautiful like poem, an homage to his life. And I think that's how I end that chapter is how, You know, Don Pedrito is going to heaven, but will still be still be there for the community. And and as you know, uh, going to the shrine and your tia has taken you to still people still go to this shrine. And every time that I've gone to the shrine, there's always someone there praying or lighting a candle um, or a new, uh, you know, new sort of messages to Don Pedrito on the wall. Um, So. So it's his, his legacy really continues. And, um, and I don't know if you know the story, I think this was in 2020 or 2020, um, during the beginning of the pandemic, right at the, I think right before the pandemic broke out, um, the shrine was vandalized. Um, and as, and I've talked with Homero Vera and a few other people from that region, and I, I don't think they've ever found who did it, but it was just a, a, a blow to the community um, that the shrine could be vandalized. And there's a couple of Facebook books, Facebook groups that I follow um, from that region. And it was just, and clearly just this, more than just an act of vandalism, it was a really uh, kind of a breaching of this sacred space. But so the community got together and rebuilt um, some art students, rebuilt some of the statues and cleaned it up. And so it's still, it's now, you know, It's functioning, it's been cleaned up, but it's so it's still this really special place to the community um, and uh, people look out for it. There's no cameras there. Um, I don't think anymore. Maybe they may have installed them after this, after the act of vandalism, but I'm not sure. But people look in on it. I know Homero at least once a week goes and checks in on it and he's just one person um, that kind of look after this this really special, really sacred space, um, really special to this community. and and again, like I said, he still continues to be um, a someone who people talk about. And I've heard from other folks I've talked to even since the book has come out that they know of healers who's, who cha- who um, claim to channel his spirit. And I think in Mexico there are healers that claim to channel his spirit as well. So so he's alive and 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 still there um, in all of these different ways.
0: Um, wow! Wow! Thank yeah. you so much for for. Um, uh, it seems like another conclusion, <laughs> like a different kinds of conclusion than the book um, for for telling us the history of the shrine and its vandalization and its efforts to get it cleaned up and, and those uh, efforts. That's amazing. Um, well, Jennifer, we've taken up lots of your time and I, I thank you so much for this fantastic conversation. Um, one last question that we like to ask here on New Books Network is what are you working on now? Can you take a couple of minutes and just sort of tell us what you're what you're thinking about now?
1: Oh, thank you so much. Well, um, speaking of the shrine, actually, I'm, um, I've been thinking a lot about wanting to do, um, uh, I don't, I don't know what this would look like, um, but I'd like to do more, do a little more research or thinking about, um, talking with people about the shrine itself, um, and the kind of layered history of the shrine. And I, um, doing a paper at the Western, the WHA in San Antonio, um, in, um, in the fall of 2022, as part of a panel um, on indigenous and sacred healing, um, one of the things that I learned, and I think I mentioned it briefly in the book, Jonathan, is that the shrine, where it is now and where Los Olmos, uh, where Don Petrito's practice was, was on Lepan Apache land, sacred land. Um, and I learned this from a healer from this region, and that Don Petrito himself was known in some Lepan Apache communities, also um, Navajo um, healers and people would Come to the shrine um, and possibly even Apache and I, and I came to this information very very late the book was already um, in the process of kind of editing and things like that so I I, ju- I think I'm gestured to this a little bit in the book but um, so I have some notes and I have some ideas of wanting to just really kind of research that a little bit more. And I think in, you know, thinking about that picture at the very end of the book of of Don Pedrito's funeral and the Mexican flag and the American flag and that powerful um, honoring of both identities. So what it doesn't show, of course, is the various indigenous sovereignties and communities. And I think as a Borderlands historian, I know that for myself and I'm all. It, and I even tell the my students, we think of the border as these two nation states, you know, coming arising out of this conflict between two nation states, but there are other sovereignties there and that were there. And so it can be easy to n- not intentionally avoid those stories or not see those stories, but in focusing only on the nation states, we for, forget about these other or don't see, don't see it in the sources. So I'm would like to. And what I'm trying to um, with this paper at the WHA will be my first kind of, um, kind of sharing what I've looked at and asking questions about about that more layered history. And also, Don Pedrito was known. This healer shared with me. He was known to speak um, a couple of different indigenous dialects as well. So, um, so that's really exciting. And so. That's one of the things I'm thinking about at the moment. So a continuation of this work, because I continue to um, hear from people and learn about it. And it's it makes it really feel like it it has a life. And I know it obviously has a life beyond me and before me. And I, you know, um, but I think it continues to. And I just am excited about people continuing to share with me and also do their do research and and continue to learn about, I think these, this really important healing practice and these healers and kind of what it shows us about, um, about the borderlands and about the world that we live in. Um, so. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. That sounds amazing. And I, yeah, I think that's so important. I think using the photo as a jumping off point to think about what is missing is, is such a, is such a generative, um, process. Uh, well, Jennifer, we've taken up lots of your time and, from myself and our listeners. I wanna thank you so much for being with us on New Books Network.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. I've enjoyed every second of this conversation. Thank you for having me and for discussing the book with me and reading the book. I appreciate it so very much.
0: Definitely, take care. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.